Welcome to Pop Screen, the Geek Show podcast dedicated to the good, the bad and the preposterous of movies, either by, starring or about pop stars. No, the podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from country and western to hip-hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm Graham Williamson, I'm a film critic for thegeekshow.co.uk and horrified.com, and this week I've been joined by... Ben Palmer, a training and consultancy business manager in healthcare. Normally, we like to give our listeners some sense of where they can read other uh, criticism or work by our guests. But if you want to experience Ben's work, listeners, get sick. (laughs) Now, there are some rock legends whose lives never make it to screen because of a lack of interesting or entertaining incidents that happened to them. Then there's Elton John, a man who, at his coked-out worst, famously called his manager to complain that the wind outside his hotel room was too loud and could he do anything about that? Yet a film of this astonishing, ridiculous life was not made until 2019, when an unlikely combination of the writer of Billy Elliot, the star of Kingsman and Spike from Press Gang, struck jukebox musical gold in our film of the week, Rocket Man. Now, uh, Ben, you'd seen this before, hadn't you? Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd seen it. Um, I didn't go to the cinema to watch it. I, I, I think I missed it at the time. Do you, mm. do you know when you when you mean to go and watch it, and then of all of course, a sudden, yeah. at the moment you think you're going to, it's uh, it's no longer there. So I actually ended up watching it um, on the TV in my in my front living room. I'm never going to be like that again. As soon as the cinemas reopen, <laughs> the idea of like missing something on the big screen is so horrifying to me right now. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. You you don't realise what you've got until it's gone, do you? Yeah. <laughs> well, I did see it on the big screen and I watched it again uh, to refresh my memory for this. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because that, that 2019 date when it came out, that was about half a year or so after Bohemian Rhapsody. Yes, yeah, yeah, which I actually did go to the big screen and watch. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it was... It was interesting timing, wasn't it? I think, mm. um, and to have two, you know, two great icons of that of that decade or of of, of the decades, um, mm. to, to have a, a film out at the at the same time was um, well, a, a delight for me. Uh, but really interesting to see the contrast between the two as well. Yeah. Because there, there is, I mean, even beyond the general areas that you would expect would be the same, like 70s rock, both got LGBT themes, you know, the, the obvious stuff. Yeah. There's some weird areas of overlap. I mean, I, I never thought there would be a time in which there would be two separate films out with the 1970s rock manager John Reed as a supporting character. Yeah, like, yeah. This, is the, this isn't exactly the Marvel Cinematic Universe we're talking about here. <laughs> no one expected a franchise of this. Yeah, like somebody just turned around one day and was like, um, who would be really good as John Reed? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that's very weird. He's played by Aidan Gillen in Bohemian Rhapsody, and he's played yeah. by Richard Madden of of TV's Everything uh, yeah. in Rocket Man. Yeah, 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 and really well put. Well, I say really well portrayed. I mean, it, through the uh, through the eyes of of the creators and Elton John, um, it should be said. But um, yeah, really good character. I think some some real depth to the character. Um, mm. And a it's good a th- villain, if you like. Yeah, it's a thankless part in a lot of ways, but I, I do think he carries it off pretty well. Yeah. But the other connection between the two, of course, is that, I mean, God knows when we'll ever get an authoritative account of what's happening behind the scenes at Bohemian Rhapsody. It was, as they say, a troubled production. But one thing that seems pretty certain is that for the last two weeks of the shoot... Dexter Fletcher stepped on board as director. Yes. Yeah. That, yeah, that really odd, wasn't it? Really mm-hmm. odd to be hearing about things like that. Is it not 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 how you'd expect um a production to go? Well, certainly not how you'd expect a production to go, but to to change something um 
so last minute and also <laughs> at such a big position as well. Just, uh, yeah, very odd. Yeah, yeah. And obviously there's been all sorts of sort of disquieting things come out about Singer since then. And a, mm. it, it seems like he's he's the one director in Hollywood who's never spent a day on set as far as I can <laughs> like make out. It's a unique style. It's a unique yeah. style to do things. Uh, he, he really yeah. pioneered the Zoom method of working that we're all... Uh... He's thriving now. He's, he's <laughs> absolutely thriving in this situation. He's got he's got a million and one uh, movies yeah. ongoing and, and he's... And, that aren't suffering because of it either. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I remember there was kind of a narrative at the time, particularly among people who were disappointed by Bohemian Rhapsody, that uh, Rocket Man is kind of the full strength version. Rocket Man is what you would have had if everyone was working together and Fletcher had been allowed to uh, to impose his vision on it from the start, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and and it's really interesting, isn't it, to um to 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 start thinking about the influences that must go on from the artists themselves. You know, the influence that Elton John. You know, when you're watching it and you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, what parts did Elton John say? Yeah, I really like that creative direction that you're going in. Um, mm. Not so much there, and how much you um you want to write history. Uh, yeah, if you like, yeah. and and how you are portrayed, and and it's the same for Bohemian Rhapsody. I suppose if it gets to a point where your creative vision for the film starts to um, conflict with the artist's ideas as how they want to be portrayed and how how they want Freddie to be portrayed, because obviously in this instance Freddie wasn't there to do that. Yeah, um, it, it's just a really interesting dynamic, isn't it, to, between the the film and the artists because it's it's around for a long time. It's a, it's a something that goes yeah absolutely and you know there is a school of thought that with music biopics you should just print the legend you know show what people want to see regardless Mm. of that and this has a bit of license to do this because the thing that fascinated and surprised me the most when I first saw it is that this is a a full-on musical like mm. you can you can say that Bohemian Rhapsody is, I guess, kind of a musical because there are people on stage and they're singing, but this is an actual people burst into song and there were rows of dancers musical. Yeah, I mean from the first scene as well, isn't it? You know, yeah. that kind of you know, he, he bursts into the into the room. Um he probably has has a little bit of dialogue for for maybe a couple of minutes and then straight into you know um the bitch is back i think she's back yeah uh, yeah straight into that and 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 like you say you've got dancers on the streets you've got a little boy singing and and, and straight away i think it sets the tone for what you for what you're about to watch for the next two hours and what i think is brilliant about this other than you know, the obvious thing, there aren't many musicals made and it's quite a sort of rare treat to see this kind of big production number on the Mm. big screen. But you've also got two kind of sub-genres here that can very easily go wrong. And I think putting them together neutralises the problems. A rock biopic can very easily go wrong. You know, there are lots of bad rock biopics. And also this is, if you... I don't know if you're familiar with this phrase. I don't know how popular it is, but this is a jukebox musical. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm not actually. What, what What's meant by that? The idea of a jukebox musical is that obviously a traditional musical has like show tunes that are either written specially for the project or in the case of Singing in the Rain were like tunes that the studio had the rights to that someone wrote a narrative around. A jukebox musical is something more along the lines of Mamma Mia, where you have pre-existing songs that people know and they are put together in a plot, which, you know, normally this is, you know, there's a parallel universe where someone is sweating away working on an Elton John jukebox musical thinking, how do I get a band called Benny and the Jets into this thing? How does this... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I can I can imagine actually they probably sat there and was like, right, okay, we've managed to get fifteen songs in. We've got another five to shoehorn into here. Um, yeah, 
Well, there's a good, there's a good point there. Yeah, let's just start start singing about Benny and the Jets. That's, that sounds like what about our characters can we call Daniel? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And they all have this in, except Rocket Man, which because it's a biopic can just cut to scenes of him playing Pinball Wizard or Benny and the Jets mm. or any other song mm. that has lyrics you can't easily fit in to a narrative of his life. But, I mean, the other thing is that because it's a, a musical and not just a rock biopic, you don't have any of those awful scenes where, like, again, in another version of this, which is a straight-up rock biopic, you'd have a scene where he's sat in his basement during the three-day week looking at a candle and it flickers a bit and thinks, ah, there's a song in that, isn't there? <laughs> but you don't have to have this because in musicals, yeah. when people get inspiration, they just jump up and sing. Yeah. So it, yeah. it so beautifully nullifies the the cheesy bits, the crap bits of both of the genres that it's mm. in. I think. Mm. Yeah, I, I I would I would agree. I'd agree with that. Um, yeah, C- creating plenty of opportunity for you to put, put to, to put some of the iconic songs that, like you say, wouldn't naturally fit into any into the storyline as a whole. Um, mm. We should probably, uh, I feel like we could do a whole power ranking of the musical numbers in here, but I don't think we should get that in, into the weeds. <laughs> what were the particular favourites for you? Which ones did you think worked really well? Uh, what, from from the perspective of part of the storyline? as, as, as uh... Well, I mean, that's a fair point. I mean, obviously you have your favourites in terms of, oh, I'm glad to have heard Songs. that song. yes. Yeah. But which do you think they did something particularly imaginative or interesting or su- emotionally successful with? Yeah, I think I think it's the um, I think it was Crocodile Rock. I think I think I think um, probably the scene where he goes to the troubadour. Um, yeah, and you know he's he's really nervous and um, you know there's that lack of confidence, which I think is a theme throughout the entire film. But you, you see that, and then when you almost see him take a deep breath. And become, you know, become someone else. And 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 I, th- I particularly liked where he starts to sing, and it's and I think he starts to sing a cappella. Mm. Um, and you almost get the feeling as though, oh, he's going to be really nervous for this. He's going to bottle it. Yeah, yeah he's going to bottle it. But then all of a sudden, the first bit is he's just done nice and slow and controlled, and then immediately gets into Crocodile Rock, which, uh, uh, you know, as a song is really upbeat and uplifting. And I think, I think actually of all the scenes in the, in the film, that in particular is just a, you know, one that you, you look at and you, you know, you're really behind him. You're really happy that he's, uh, Mm. that he's managed to nail that. Yeah. And I think some of the songs, uh, that that's a good example of it. Some of the songs are reshaped in ways that make them fit what a musical needs from a number at this point, like the most obvious one being the treatment of Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Yes, yes, yeah, the Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. That's um, that's when Bernie's walking out of the um, the restaurant, isn't it? Um, it's in that, and it's also they use it as a kind of a motif throughout, which, a- uh... again, I don't think is the kind of thing that just anyone would do in their jukebox musical. A lot of jukebox musicals are just, he is a hit, he is another hit, he yeah. is another. But there's an attempt to make this flow as an actual musical should. Yeah, satisfy the masses. You know, mm. let's get this hit in. And yeah, I, yeah. I, I see what you're saying there, yeah. Yeah, uh, for me, uh, there's a few songs, a few numbers that really impressed me. I think just in terms of pure choreography the one for honky cat is incredible (laughs) and it has my i mean we're going to talk a bit about the cast later on but in terms of just like one scene appearances the waiter who just flips over the table is (laughs) what a star that guy is i love him this is in my way this this (laughs) needs to move immediately (laughs) (laughs) yeah that that's a great that's a fantastic scene I, i actually um when you just mentioned that then I, I totally forgot about it but yeah what a what a fantastic scene that they kind of just go into it and what i really like about that those little moments because there's a couple isn't there there you know the bitches back i think is the first one where there's there's almost a transition in mm. between one time to another and yeah it, and it, it's 
it, it was really interesting in times of that, uh, you know, that song in particular, at the start of it, I think he's just met John Reed, hasn't he? And then he goes, goes into that honky cat. And by the end of it, as a, as a viewer, I'm immediately invested in yeah. their, you know, in, in their uh, relationship in the space of one song. And mm-hmm. that's, and that's partly down to the, the great choreography, as you say there, but, but also it's a spectacle, isn't it? It's a spectacle yeah. for the eyes, great song, spectacle for the eyes. And by the end of it, you're like, you know, you're invested in their relationship in, in all a part of the, you know, part of five minutes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's one of a few numbers on it. That's a bit of a, I don't want to say deep couscous honky shuttle was a, a really big album, but it's, I think if you were asking someone on the street to list down 10 or 12 songs that are going to be in the Elton John movie, Honky Cat would not necessarily be in there. It's there because it works. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a really good point again. Um, yeah. If, you, if someone said to me, you know, list your top, top 10 songs, Honky Cat might not be in there, but it, it really did work in that moment mm. with that choreography for the reasons of the script and the, um, and the film as a whole, absolutely. I think uh, there wouldn't have been a better song for it. Yeah. And I think picking up on something you said about it, that idea that you can use a musical number to kind of propel the plot forward and establish something in a way that's emotional is something that people don't often get about musicals. I hear a lot of people say, I hate musicals because, you know, every time the plot's going, it just comes to a standstill for five minutes while they sing and you think well that's how it is in a bad musical but <laughs> yeah yeah like yeah but bad musical is you know a little bit of talking a little bit of script oh we've got to a point where we're gonna like as you said earlier we're gonna shoehorn this great hit in mm. everyone's gonna enjoy the great hit for three minutes and then we're gonna go back to the the boring scripting until we get to the next hit yeah um, but, and it wasn't like that for this was it it was you know no. it was, it felt it they didn't feel two separate things they felt they felt intertwined throughout and i think in terms of like something that pushes it forward as you were saying the saturday night's all right fighting scene yeah. is a fabulous example of that because elton john grows up about 10 years <laughs> during the course of it <laughs> Yeah, and again, and again, because of the upbeat nature of the song, mm. you don't actually you don't actually question anything. Yeah. Um, you think, oh yeah, young young Elton John. I, I assume he was maybe 11, 12 years old at the beginning of that scene. Um, the, the song comes in, fantastic, and then it's a spectacle again, isn't it? It's yeah. choreographed. It's got loads of people in there, and by the end of it, you you have no question. You don't you know you don't have a second thought. At the fact that he has grown up about five or six years in that time, <laughs> or he's maybe gr- more. Yeah, he's he's grown up and he's become Taron Edgerton, which feels like a good way to maybe go into the cast because this this has a pretty interesting mm. cast. I think it can't have been easy to find people for these roles. I would say no. And 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 I, am I right in thinking that Elton John had a particular say in who portrayed him? Uh, yeah. Thank you. yeah, they went through a few people. Uh, there was a, a stage which I'd forgotten about until I was doing the research for this and it sort of came back suddenly. There was definitely a stage where they were talking about Tom Hardy, which would have been wow. absolutely surreal. I'm just, I'm just trying to think that through. Just because immediately... <laughs> That was, I was I was just about to say as soon as I think Tom Hardy I think I think acting with his eyebrows um, <laughs> so how we'd have been able to, well he's a great actor don't get me wrong yeah 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 it, it would be a million miles away from anything he's ever done before um yeah I, I, yeah I can't see was that serious was that as well like I think really thought it through or was it just a fleeting thought? <laughs> I mean, had they thought it through, it was a question that I feel only the production team could answer, <laughs> but it was there was definitely a time when he was attached to it. And I mean, if you're Elton John, you're thinking to yourself, yeah, I'll have Tom Hardy play. Yeah, you just sat there thinking, oh, yeah, I, I did look a lot like Tom Hardy in my youth. Yes, definitely. Yeah, 
Yeah, and I mean, I think Elton, Elton will say the say will, will probably be the first to say I'm I'm, I'm, I'm going to put it out there. But he he would have said, yeah, I, I probably wasn't the the greatest looking mm. uh, man. Yeah. And then, you know, Tom Hardy is a very beautiful looking man, and you're thinking, you know, there's a little bit there. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, uh, Tavon Egerton isn't a bad looking guy, but That's there is something point, about his face that. You, you can change that into Elton John in a way that I didn't think would be possible. You put the glasses and the wig on him and somehow yeah. that works. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the likeness is uncanny, isn't it? Mm. Um, yeah, it's, um, I, I, think it, I think it does a great job from start to finish. And, and again, I, I think the script helps that. I think the way that it, the, the production is put together helps that. But... But you, you really get the sense, again, from the very... F- I keep going back to that first scene because I've, mm. I really do feel as though it sets the tone for the rest of the film. And just mm. when he bursts into those doors and he, he, he the way he talks, um, the kind of sassy nature of the, of the script at that point, and yeah. you, immediately you think, I believe in you as Elton John. Um, and, I, and I can believe that. I think it was easy for me because I'm probably the only sort of film goer... Uh, in Britain who was only seeing Taron Egerton in like in I think only in one thing before this actually uh ironically one thing with Tom Hardy he has a small role in Legend as uh I forget which Cray twin was gay uh largely because I don't care about like 60s (laughs) gangsters but he's in there somewhere as as our Cray let's say our Cray's boyfriend right um but I hadn't seen the Kingsman films. I hadn't seen Eddie the Eagle. I hadn't seen a lot of the things that people would know him I, from. I had seen the Kingsman, which I thought he was very good in. And then mm. I saw, uh, was it Robin Hood? Oh, blimey, oh, yeah. Oh, honestly. Hey, yeah, that was, that, you know, when, when he probably has um, some interviews later on in life, it'll go down as kind of like, <laughs> uh, it'll go down as Will Smith's Wild Wild West, I think. I think Because um, that was done in that, uh, yeah, like you say, Wild Wild West, that kind of willfully anachronistic style yeah. where like someone fires a bow and arrow and it lands and there's a massive fireball and you think, how much, yeah. how much kerosene was there in the Middle Ages just lying around the place? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was. It wasn't a good film. It really wasn't a good film. It, you know, one of those films that goes right. I've got a great title, and I've got a couple of great cast members, and everyone loves a good Robin Hood film. Yeah, uh, let's just let's go with it and let let him. You know shoot some arrows, <laughs> save somebody. <laughs> it's one of those public domain titles, isn't it? Which sort of gets reinvented every couple of years despite the fact that it never makes money like i am convinced that there is some sort of producer's style tax break in hollywood for any studio that loses a hundred million (laughs) dollars making a version of peter pan it's the only explanation for why they keep doing it You know, I think you might be onto something. I think, mm. I think you could dedicate an entire show to to that. An investigative <laughs> podcast. Yeah, right. We want to get to the bottom of why this dross keeps coming out of Hollywood. <laughs> and I have a theory. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Because I, I can... I can see why someone would watch Kingsman and think, oh, yeah, that guy, Robin Hood. Yeah, that works. But yes. There is something else in his persona that I think is more interesting that this film minds. I mean, he is very self-deprecating. He's very seems very down to earth, and I think you sort of need that for someone like Elton John because, of course, there is a a risk that as soon as he starts going out on stage dressed as Queen Elizabeth the First, you think. <laughs> Right, right, no, he's gone bananas. I give in. You know, I don't connect with this character anymore. Yeah, and I think that it is—it's the vulnerability, and and the Mm. way he 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 gets the vulnerability across throughout the film that you you can't help but like him. Yeah, him and also you know Elton John, who is portraying, um, and and as an actor to to be able to. You know, get. I think I think when you when you mention um, Kingsman, 
and, yeah. and Robin Hood. I think it's because as an actor, you probably, I assume, it's easier to portray an action man, you know, mm. with a range, with a, with, a, with a scope of emotions that's maybe quite narrow. Um, yeah. Because it, it's more action-based. Um, there's probably a love interest in there. Um, and then you're done. Whereas this, this really, I suppose, challenged his skills as an actor to, to mm. widen the scope of emotion in which he needed to to portray and you know vulnerability the uh, up and down nature of uh, elton's uh, mental health mm-hmm. um you know so many different things that he, he had to do and i think he did really well yeah because you know despite a lot of people think that musicals are very fluffy and they're wrong. A lot of people think that pop movies are necessarily fluffy and they're wrong with that. But it's, it still, I think, might surprise people how warts and all the image of Elton John you get in this movie is. Because Elton himself is very upfront about the fact that there were large stretches of his life where he was just not a good person to be around. Yeah, yeah, and that and that that honesty as well. Um, mm-hmm. it, I mean, it, t- it takes a lot for a man to be that, but that honest. It's a man or woman um, to be that honest. Um, and you know, in this case, with Elton John, to be able to kind of openly say, "I was this, I was that," and then also oversee a film in which you know, again, for, yeah. for large chunks of it, he is portrayed as as somebody not very easy to be around. Um, yeah. Yeah, that must that must be a, that must be a very a very difficult thing to do. It's one thing, I suppose, saying it and maybe saying it in your autobiography, but then to see somebody else acting how you say that you acted in that time. Yeah, that's very true. I wonder if that's like the reason why Elton was pretty hands off in a lot of ways when this mm. was being made. He was sort of a, a a guardian angel of the film. He protected it against, you know, studio notes coming in saying we need to tone down the drug use, we need to tone down the homosexuality. He protected it against all of that stuff. Yeah. But he said he really didn't want the filmmakers and the actors to feel like they had him breathing down their neck, you know, trying to impose a particular vision on it. Yeah, well, I mean, well, fair play to him in mm. in, in that regard, um, and and good that he, he he championed those things because without it, it wouldn't be the same film, would it? If you hadn't no. toned toned down the homosexuality, all the drug use, um, all all the you know the relationships in that he had with different people, um, mm. it just wouldn't be the same film. There is reportedly uh, a version of this film that was released in Russia, which does cut out the homosexuality and the drug use. Oh, and wow. I, I would love to see that. It would just be a beautiful <laughs> 26 minutes of a guy sat at a piano. We're going, we're going back to your, we're going back to the to the musicals, aren't we? A little yeah. bit of talking. Oh, that's a great, that's a great song. Great song. Yes. A bit of talking again. And there you go. That's all it is. What a great film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. And uh, I mean, I I don't want to keep bringing up Bohemian Rhapsody, but they were compared so much. I, I thought, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody was not as sanitised as I'd feared when I'd heard the, the Queen buy a pick as a 12 certificate. But mm. Elton John did have a wonderful line about that where he said there was a lot of pressure for it to be a PG certificate. And I kept saying I did not have a PG certificate life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, everything that you hear about rock and roll in mm. that decade tells you that if you're going to do a film of somebody from that decade, it's definitely not going to be PG. And if it is PG, then serious questions need to be asked. Um, yeah. The thing about the 70s as well is that it's kind of almost a naive time to have that happen. There are drugs going around, but nobody's quite aware of what the long-term effects will be. There's, mm. you know, uh, sex around, but there's no AIDS yet. You know, it's the, it's like a perfect historical moment for that kind of excess to happen. And, well, it did. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, the drug, and I, I do the, I, I feel as though they, they show the drug use in, for want of a better word, classy 
way. And the, <laughs> the reason I use that word um, is because the do- it doesn't dominate the viewing experience, you know. Yeah. You're aware that it's there. You're aware the impact that it's having on Elton John um, and on the main character. But you don't feel as though it's in your face. You have to see this. It was It was more the effect of drug use as opposed to the actual drug use itself yeah yeah definitely um and and i suppose one of the most sort of visually discreet but emotionally powerful depictions of that effect is the title song itself the sequence which uses rocket man yes yeah yeah that's yeah that's the scene when he's in the um when he's in his bedroom and then he goes out to the uh, to the pool isn't it yeah yeah, and and he, so yeah, and that that kind of um, the tranquility as he's falling through the water to see himself as a young boy mm. uh, playing the piano. I think yeah, there's and and what an interesting use of probably you know one of his top three songs. Arguably. Yeah, um, what a really interesting way to incorporate that. I suppose what what it is with. Rocket Man, as it's used in the film, is they they catch the emotional truth of the song. Again, there is a very bad jukebox musical you could make out of Elton John's hits where this is literally a song about someone going into space or something. But they, they zero in on the fact that what makes this song last and why it connects with people is that sense of real loneliness at the core Mm. of it. Mm, which I suppose, you know, is homage to where these songs came from. You know, they, they were, you know, he had a style of very personal, deep songs uh, yeah. between himself and and, um, and Bernie. They created songs that were really deep in emotion, and and uh, you know, every line had a meaning. There was there was never a you, you never listened to one line and and it just a flippant line because it rhymed or because of this you know everything had a meaning it was it was centered around something and what i love in particular about bernie tarpin's songwriting is that there isn't really a line between the fantasy and the emotion of it which i suppose is is a reason why he was so well matched to a showman like elton because Mm. When we first see him in this movie, and I'm sure this is a pretty accurate portrayal of who Bernie Taupin was at this point in his life, he is a kid living in his mother's bedroom in Lancashire writing about cowboys. You don't think that that, well, you don't think that guy could probably get dressed on a morning, but you don't really (laughs) think that he's going to write songs that make people cry at weddings. But somewhere in the fantasy of it, there is something very real. Yeah, yeah, it, it all it has it has a reality grounding of mm-hmm. of which then he takes to a to a fantasy level. I think, um, yeah, it's just so many of the lyrics and and what actually it really interestingly enough again going back to the to the film and and, and the way it shows the, sometimes when it slows down the lyrics, slow you know Yellow Brick Road for example when when they are talking about that and uh, Bernie's mm-hmm. working out of the restaurant. And and he, and and almost the words are spoken. They took on a new meaning for me. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd listened to that song a million times before, but slowing it down uh, it, with the with the di- you know with the dialect, what's just happened in the film, and then and then almost talking uh, slash singing the words. I was thinking oh, I'd, I'd never noticed that that line said that. Um, so it took on a different meaning for me, which I really liked because it was something new. You know, reinventing mm-hmm. something that's been around for for ages. For me, the the great example of that in the film is the very early number with I Want Love. Yes. Where it's passed in between members of his family and suddenly a song which in its recorded state is just a, a song about heartbreak, a song about one man's heartbreak suddenly becomes about all these different people and everything they wanted from life and everything they didn't get from life. And it's a really great sequence, I think. And and again, I, I, I couldn't agree more with you. And again, by the end of that song, by the end of, of that two or three minutes, 
you feel as though you know his family so much more than when yeah. the song started. And, 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 you know, that is, I feel as though, although it was, it's two hours long, what they're able to do in those sequences that we keep re- referencing is essentially um, speed up the investment of the viewer yeah. in, in the film. And one of the things I love about movies is that compression. I hate that it's fashionable now to make everything like at the very least a mini series and to talk about how it's it's 10 episodes long. So it's got the storytelling is so much better. And you say, well, that's not better storytelling, isn't it? It's just more storytelling. I think there there are moments in a film, particularly a film like this, which is a musical and has license to be kind of non-realistic, where you can just cut things together and have things live alongside each other in a way that really deepens the meaning of them. Yeah. Yeah. And all whilst listening to great songs. Which we should talk about. Yeah, we should talk about our sort of experience of Elton John's music because uh, we, we have only sort of talked about it as it appears in this film, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I, so, so the first time I came across Elton John, it was really interesting, isn't it? Because if you if you're not, you know, if you weren't born in that decade, or or even the decade that that followed, you know, when he's mm. when he's at his peak of his powers, and you and you're hearing those songs, um, so so for context, I'm born born in 1990, so I'm probably listening to his songs for the very first time, 2003 to 2004. You know. Oh, right, because that's when uh, Are You Ready For Love became a surprise number one, isn't it? That's yes. been when that was happening. I did yeah. actually forget about that. That might be why. What and then you it? kind of get down, yeah, a little bit of a rabbit hole. I really like this song. And then, and, and so when I was listening to his songs for the first time, it, what struck me, what I've always enjoyed about music is those unique artists that mm. you could play anywhere around the world and you put the song on and immediately you know who it is. Yeah, and I would. I'd put Elton John into that category, and and I, and I don't think it's a very big group of people that actually can be in that gr- that category. Um, but he 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 for me is in that. Absolutely, yeah. For me, it was more of a sort of a an odd journey because, and I suppose it does tie in like that to how Elton John was seen in the wide world. I I do remember hearing "I'm Still Standing" when I was a kid. I think there was. Yeah. My memory of it is, and I'm not sure whether this is just something I've like hashed together in my mind uh, to make sense of this, but my memory of it is that there was a special, now that's what I call music compilation, which was like the best of the first 10 albums or whatever. Mm. And the TV campaign for it went mad on I'm Still Standing. You know, that was considered yeah. one of the absolute crown jewels of the set. Um and I understood that because I, I, as soon as I heard it, I loved that song. And I sort of, I grew apart from him a bit after, I guess, because uh, like when I was in my teens, you had uh, Candle in the Wind 97 out, mm. which one was a record everyone quickly got bored of hearing. Um, and two, it just made him feel like part of the establishment in a way that I, I didn't want to be listening to anyone who was part of the establishment at that age. I don't think, you know, a teenager would. No. No. So I suppose I came back around slowly. I think what might have done it was uh, a few years after that, I started to get into the Beastie Boys. and. Yes they did a cover version of Benny and the Jets with Bismarcky, which is, um, alcohol may have been imbibed at some point during the recording, but (laughs) it it did send me back to the early records, most of which I had not heard beyond, you know, your song or any of the other sort of one or two big hits that come from them. And I became fascinated by how very, very good they are. Yeah, I absolutely, and and similar to yourself, you know, my my teens was filled with you know Red Hot Chili Peppers, 
Lincoln mm. Park, Blink One Eight Two, all those type of things. And actually, I, 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 it, as you was as you was talking, then I um, I, I, it sparked a memory, and I think I, I think the first um song was Pinball Wizard. Oh yeah, Pin, you know yeah. a real you know because so many people have covered Pinball Wizard, mm. and so I came across his cover of Pinball Wizard, absolutely loved it. Um, and then and then like like you say there, you know you've got your song and 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 the usuals that everyone would have heard, um, if not you know for myself associating it to Elton John, who you know the, the superstar. Um, yeah. So, but then that kind of prompted me to I think to start start listening a little bit more, and then probably as I got into my twenties or where my I would also say my appreciation of of music increased and, and the, the range of, of music that I listened to increased. It was at that point then really I'm starting to listen to some of his albums and some of the lesser known titles. Yeah, I, th- I think that sort of point about the the range of music was probably part of what did it with me as well, because like, I suppose not dissimilar to you, when I was a teenager, I mainly liked punk. I was yeah. very into punk and I think if I had encountered a lot of those early Elton John songs back then, I probably wouldn't have appreciated them much because I would have found them kind of florid and kind of too gentle and I wouldn't have understood how good they were. Yeah, absolutely. I'd I'd have have listened to it. And and I suppose as well then, I I probably listened to music and didn't understand why I liked some music and why I didn't like other music and why... Um, even music that you maybe don't f- fully like, you can still appreciate the um, the influences that have gone into that music. And, yeah. and, and, and on that point with Elton John, I think he has such a unique sound, you mm. know, a unique blend of, I feel, you know, that, that rock and roll, but also that soul as well. And, and the, Yeah, which is explored quite well in the film, isn't it? That there is such... For, for all, it's very easy to listen to Elton John music and think, what is the genre of this? Oh, it's Elton John. You know, he's it, a genre to himself. But there were elements in his music, and particularly in those early records, of soul, uh, of glam rock, of country and western, mm. of an awful lot of things that seem to get smoothed over in terms of being part of just this star persona, which on one level, I guess, is a triumph of his star persona. They can absorb him doing any kind of music he wants. But it does, I think, make people overlook how interesting the early records are. Yeah, yeah. And do you know what I noticed the other day as well? I was listening, again, I was listening to some of his songs. Um, a lot of slow songs and, mm. you know, what you'd call maybe ballads. And, and I'd be interested to to know if there's if there's been another male artist that has, has had as much success with those slower ballad-like songs as, as he as he has. Because, you know, immediately when you think rock and roll in the 70s, you think upbeat, you know, he's Rocket Man, he's Crocodile Rock, I'm still standing. Yeah. But a lot of his other stuff are real... Um, you know, slow, meaningful, deep, emotional songs, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's true. I, I can't, I can't really think of one. I suppose you would have to, as you say, go to soul singers and start thinking about people like Sam Cooke or Otis Redding yeah. for another male artist who has that kind of vulnerability as part of their USP. Yeah, yeah, and for him to be doing it in the in the decades that he w- he was doing it, yeah, um, you know those ultra, you know, again going back to to Queen and mm. you know, the kind of music that they were doing, all upbeat, real rocker type songs. Um, he he was he was booking this trend and still being successful in doing that as well. Yeah, and I think part of it is like what what the film contextualizes very well part of it is kind of a british post-war thing where we've just gone through world war ii it was brutally tough uh we had a rationing regime that lasted well into the 1950s and suddenly there is this space for people from ordinary boring working class suburbs to dream big and want to be, you know, in, in Elton's case, a balladier, in Freddie Mercury's case, the biggest star in the world, in David Bowie's case, a Martian. You know, yeah. <laughs> suddenly you're licensed to do this in a way that you weren't before. 
Yeah. What a burst of creativity around that time as well. Yeah, um, yeah. To produce such talent. Um, and again, in the going back to the film um, for, for Ellen John, I, I, I found that quite interesting. Um, mm-hmm. How he came to play the piano, how yeah. it portrayed him to have a, a natural gift sat in front of a piano for the very first time and being able to um, to go through the keys as, as, as he did, then having that kind of classical uh, upbringing and training and schooling. Yeah. And all, all of, I mean, some of that stuff at the start with him learning piano felt like a screenwriter's invention when I first watched it, but I have since read his autobiography and it literally was the case that if you played him a classical piece on the radio, he could play it up until the point where you turned the radio wow. off. He had that wow. gift. And, you know, you liken that kind of gift to, you know, composers, yeah, um, yeah, in, you know, and and he Sad kind of took that out. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. You you know, more often than not, if you if you heard something like that, you would be thinking, oh, they're a classical uh, music player. Um, he took that and managed to become the biggest rock star on the earth. Um, yeah, and it's it's one of those things, isn't it? Where I think bad seventies rock is the kind of rock that you listen to when you think. Oh yeah, I can hear you. Everyone's a good player, but you know, do a tune. Whereas yeah. when you listen to Crocodile Rock, you don't necessarily think this person has learned at the Royal Academy. It just sounds like a big thumping kind of piano boogie thing. You can take it apart, and you find that there's lots of fascinating stuff going on, but it yeah. doesn't hamper the song's immediacy. No. No, no. And I, 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 as you mentioned that, and when you were saying about taking it apart, and you can see that, that, that a lot's going on. Again, another thing I found fascinating was the, the honesty in which in the film he says, I, I can't write songs. Yeah, yeah. You know, I can't, I can't do that. I can't, you know, <laughs> I can do this. I just can't do that. <laughs> Again, man, the yacht biography is uh, wonderfully. Is it? I mean, firstly, I want to say that I only read it because I was going on this podcast and I was staggered. I think it's the funniest book I've read since Inherent Vice. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Um, But he talks for a long time about the stuff which I think is rightly cut out from this film, which is his time in the trenches, this time when, you know, music producers thought well we've got this kid who you know doesn't look like a pop star but he can play piano but he can't write lyrics okay well we've got this kid who can't sing but he's a lyricist and the natural thing to get them to do together is to get them writing songs for Scylla Black or Tom Jones or someone and he is like really frank about the fact that they just him and Bernie just failed at doing that for about three solid years. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to have seen some of the stuff they sent over to Tom Jones. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I, I had heard that he'd done, but I'd forgotten about it until I read the book, was that um, I can't remember why this happened. I remember this was something that my dad had, but they used to do these... Uh, vinyl albums which had like chart hits of the day but performed by session musicians and there was some complex rights related reason why they couldn't do what they later did and just put the songs recorded by the artists who had hits with them but Elton John for a while was part of that factory where they just had to like cover anything that was in the charts. And he said there were there were times when people were coming to me and saying, all right, can you do us a version of Young, Gifted and Black? And he said, well, it kind of loses some of its force coming from a white bloke from Pinner. But yeah, I'll give it a go, I guess. <laughs> the image of that would... Uh... <laughs> Surprisingly, he's never pulled that out as a concert. No, I can't imagine no. why. Uh, yeah, I can't for the for the life of me think why that wouldn't be wouldn't be a good idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just an absolute genius. Hmm. Just the way and and I can I can 
I didn't know that that the you know the three years prior, um, mm. you know, trying to do music for other people. But I can I can under, I can immediately go yeah I understand that I can understand why it wouldn't work because it, it apart from your song, mm. I I would say that you know a large amount of his music immediately sounds a lot worse from anybody else, no matter who it is, mm. um, than when Elton John did it. Um, because mm. there was just something about the the lyrics and the the uniqueness of the of the surrounding parts. And what I mean by that is, I suppose, you know, the, the melody that he put uh, he, he put to the words um, and, and his stage his stagemanship um, yeah. that he puts into that. And so no matter who does that, I think it just loses something. Yeah, and maybe, I hadn't thought of this before, but maybe this is why, uh, although, as you say, Elton John songs do not generally work when covered, he has a surprisingly high number of songs that have sampled his work. It's that strange sort of afterlife that a lot of those songs have with the, I forget which song it was, but there's an Elton John sample on Ghetto Gospel by Tupac. Uh, ah yes, there's a really fantastic yes. tribe called Quest song that samples Benny and the Jets. Oh, right. There's there's quite there's an unexpectedly rich Elton John hip hop discography out there, and maybe that is why that the, these are great songs. You can take them mm. apart and they still work, but what you yeah. can't do is cover them. Yeah, I I would think that that's that's right. Like I say, I. I, I the only one I can think of is is your song, um, which is like a been, standard, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, which has probably been covered by you know. It's the safe option for artists to try and mm. cover. You try and cover, you know, as you mentioned earlier, Daniel, Crocodile Rock, Rocket Man. You, you, I've heard some bad versions well. of Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Oh, for some reason, that that is the song that people flunk more than any other. Yeah, I don't know why. It kind of teases artists in. You know, yeah. This will be an easy one to do, and then just chews them up and spits them out. <laughs> Everyone loves Goodbye Yellow Brick Road until yeah. about three minutes later. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> yes. Uh, before we finish, there's just a, a few other people in the cast that I mm. want to single out because um, I, I do think, although it is... Egerton's show, it is a pretty rich supporting bench. Mm. I think Bryce Dallas Howard as his mother is fantastic. That is a really unheralded performance, I think. But brilliant. Um, it's only it's only through her performance that I think you are able to join the dots between how Elton is mm. and um, why that is. Um, but not and and also. Worth mentioning, not just the bad points as well as in the you know feeling unloved and abandonmentship and and all those type of things, mm. but also just the the extra nature is how yeah, I describe yeah. it. You know, he, I, his his mum's doing that at the very beginning of the show, and you know he's doing that by the end of it. Yeah, because I mean, it, she in her own way is also sort of trying to seize the freedoms of that are opening up in the second half of the twentieth century, and mm. yeah, it just so happens that that's in—I I don't want to say a more destructive way, because Elton's pretty self-destructive, but yeah. uh, it, there, there isn't the sort of saving grace of the talent there. But I think. Bryce Dallas Howard is really good, and I want to give her props as the one of the perilously small number of American actors who can do a British accent that isn't just, you know, posh, that isn't just Downton Abbey. No other American actor can nail that as well as she does, I think. You know, it's a, yeah, again, a really good point. I don't think I have... Um... Yeah, the, the posh is easy, isn't it? Because it doesn't have any any earth grit to it <laughs> i think yeah um, i think people people are familiar with it people grow up watching it on television it's like the obvious thing that foreigners know about britain and you know you watch enough of it and you can do an impersonation but yeah getting someone from california to do a pin of accent is uh, yeah. a bit of a taller border nailed it though yeah <laughs> 
Uh, so I think she's very good. Uh, I mm. do have a great fondness for Jamie Bell as, uh, well, in anything really, but as Bernie Taupin in this case. Another star of the show, really. Mm. Um, I don't think it would have been the same if if there was an actor that wasn't as strong. Yeah, yeah. Um, it could it could have could have brought the film down a little bit, but but to have to have two people in those iconic roles um, do the job that they did, I think I think it, it was really fantastic. And I was worried that it was going to, when I saw it on paper that it was going to feel like a bit of a nudge in the ribs because of course it's written by Lee Hall who wrote Billy Elliot and Elton John did the music for the stage play of Billy Elliot and I thought am I going to be able to forget about that and yeah after about sort of 30 seconds I forgot it was Jamie Bell so you know mission yeah. accomplished. It's the long hair. It's all, the long hair <laughs> is very young Billy Elliot in this yeah. said yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, very fond of that. Um, yeah, people underestimate how versatile Jamie Bell is, but he's had a weird, bloody career in a good way, I think. Yeah, I mean, he he has managed to make sure that he's that he, that he doesn't get typecasted. Mm, I, th- I think yeah. that you know, such a such a huge role um, immediately. You can you can probably struggle to 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 step out of the shadow of that, mm. um, and so I think he's taken some of the stuff I've seen him in. He's really taken on different types of roles. You know, almost you're almost having to go to the to the opposite. Um, and sh- about, show him a, sh- show his skill set. I think there can't be many other actors who have been directed by Clint Eastwood and Lars von Trier. I think that's probably kind of a unique uh, corner <laughs> of film that he's wow. carved himself out there. Yeah, yeah, something to put on the CV certainly. Um, but yeah, he could have. It, it was it was in danger of being typecasted. Wasn't? Oh wasn't yeah, to, I'm, to I'm sure after Billy Elliot, he'll have got like a thousand boy comes of age by doing insert unusual hobby here and he quite rightly avoided all of it yeah yeah had a little bit of a a little bit of a break um and and when he has come back i think he's picked the right roles yeah Um, although interestingly enough always i I feel always support supporting roles as opposed to yeah yeah and i don't know whether that's just part of how he's avoided that typecasting mm. that he's thought you know one way that I won't be asked to play that self-discovery story again is if I am supporting the person who's discovering themselves I don't know yeah, yeah. I mean it's not to, to to devalue his input I think um, there's been many of films that have been propped up by the supporting cast um, Completely. And, and and again in this I think I think he he certainly adds to, to, and there's a reason why it's such a great film. Yeah. There's not a great amount of Elton John cinematic history that has to interpolate. Like, I always say the reason why no one's made a film about, like, the Beatles' rise to success is because A Hard Day's Night already exists. So, what can you <laughs> add to it? Uh, but there is a uh, a fantastic Elton John cinema connection that I found out when I was doing the research for this, uh, which I think we could end on now. The original studio version of Sorry Seems to be the Hardest Word has Electric Piano by James Newton Howard, who would go on to do the score for Pretty Woman, The Dark Knight, and many, many of the films. Wow. Wow, I didn't know about that. No. That's it. Nugget of information there. When pubs reopen, this is the kind of trivia that we're going to need. Do you know? I might actually start a book that just (laughs) just lists this. I could I could I could easily get material for the next two or three years. I think, Um, and this would this would be down there. I'd I'd maybe I'd maybe wait a few months, you know, so I don't peak too soon. But yeah, but stockpile it. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) absolutely but yes uh, until next week then that's your lot from Pop Screen I've been Graham and I've been Ben and we'll see you next week Mm -hmm.